Hey there, and welcome to the Sponsor Talk podcast, where we interview some of the leading minds in the world of sponsorship marketing and discover the various ways in how brands interact with properties within sports, arts, film, music, you name it. Today's conversation is going to be a fun one. It's with Matt Kobach. He's the director of content marketing at Fast, the world's first one-click online checkout, which actually launched pretty recently. And prior to, that, prior to that, he was running digital and social for the New York Stock Exchange. If you think the name sounds familiar, it's probably because you follow him on Twitter. Um, he's one of the leading minds in driving forward funny, thought-provoking, insightful social media content. And Adweek actually named him one of the top 100 most inspiring minds in marketing, media, and culture. And that all happened pretty recently. So if you want to follow him, it's at M. Kobach. It's the social handle on Twitter. Matt, welcome to the Sponsor Talk show. It's so good to have you. I appreciate it. I wish I started every conversation with an intro like that. I was, that was amazing. <laughs> I rehearsed it a little bit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so tell me what's going on. So you're, you're at Fast now. Um, you're trying yep. to you know, challenge online selling, take the friction away um, from buying things online, but not everyone's familiar with Fast. So maybe you could just tell us a little bit about it and, and what people need to know about the company. Certainly. So there's really two elements to Fast that really help people understand it. Uh, first is we want to be a one-click shopping experience. So the easiest way to understand it is to think about how easy it is to order stuff from Amazon we're offering that same simplicity to every other website on the internet. So it's one click to buy on Amazon. It's one click to buy for any company that installs fast checkout. Uh, the way it works is simple. You register on a device, you know, you put you enter in your information one time. And then as long as you're still using that device, it's automatically saved and any button or any website that has that button, you can literally just click and it orders. Um, you get a short window to change your order. So, uh, it's about five minutes. And let's say you need to change, you, you have the wrong credit card in, or you want to update an address or something, or you just change your mind and want to cancel it. Uh, you, you get that. But the idea is to really level the playing field for every other online store, uh, because we believe that, that a big reason why people so consistently shop at Amazon is that it's easy. It's frictionless. You know, I don't want to go in the other room and get my credit card. I don't want to have to uh, update any information. So, uh, so that's part one. Part two is that we really want to be the place where you don't have to fill in any information ever again that's uh, done repeatedly. Mm -hmm. So it's not just for checking out, it's for anything that ever asks for information that you've already entered in somewhere else. So we really wanna be the one place where you can store a bunch of your information and then any website that uh, installs fa its fast login is, is the other product, um, that you don't need a password. You don't need to enter in your address. You don't need to enter in your email, like none of it. And you, you can kind of extrapolate of what that might mean in the future. Why are we still filling out forms in 2020? Especially like you should fill it out once and then uh, and that's it. And the technology should be able to take care of the rest. So uh, working on it, working with a team that's building this amazing technology and um, it seems inevitable to me that something like this will yeah. exist in the and future. And you know what? A lot of it's driven by simplicity, like you talked about, convenience. Um, it, at the root of it, it's really making the purchasing process a lot easier for people, right? Um, mm -hmm. And it, if I think about, you know, how accessible um, products like McDonald's or McDonald's food, candy bars, it's it's driving that convenience because you can find that anywhere. And I think once fa fast gets to a point where 
you know, it's so simple, it's so easy to use. And a lot of retailers and a lot of companies are, are you know, coming on board. Um, it'll just, it seems like it'll simplify the process. So, you know, what is it that you think that fast um, delivers that's right for consumers? Like why, why is it that when people are shopping um, and the mindset that they're in, that this is something that is going to help them and help their experience? Uh, it's really about thinking about going about your day. Well, how about this? There's two types of things that you shop for primarily. Uh, there's the stuff that you kind of need, you know, like the essentials, you need new toilet paper, you need new bath towels, whatever. Uh, and then there's kind of the more pleasure, like maybe you want to buy a new pair of pants or something. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, first, uh, that first category uh, of stuff, you shouldn't waste your time having to enter in information. You shouldn't waste your time having to fill out a credit card and an address and stuff. We want to make it so that like these, these simple things that you have to do over and over uh, don't take out part of your day that you should be spending otherwise. Uh, the, the point of technology is to make our lives easier and better. And so you want to take stuff like that where you're buying stuff over and over and make it as simple and seamless as possible so that you can spend more time, you know, Ta- having a conversation with you, talking mm-hmm. with friends, doing, doing it, whatever it is that you want to do instead of having to enter an information. Uh, the other side of it is when you're kind of shopping more for pleasure than necessity. And the idea is that like, that should be an enjoyable experience. It, there, it, you should get, you know, you should find something that excites you and you want to buy it. And there shouldn't be this part of the process where you get to it and you think, ah, oh, I got to go get my credit card. I got it. It's in the other room. And it sounds kind of silly and it sounds a little trivial, but we all know that we've done it. We all know that we've abandoned carts because we just didn't feel like going to get that information that was in another room. So we want to make this experience a really enjoyable experience, which is what every store, every person who sells anything wants to do. You want to make it pleasurable from the discovery to purchase or you know, discovery to, to when you actually have it in your hands. And so we think we can be a part of making that process that much more enjoyable and so that people want to interact with your brand and purchase from your brand more in the future. Mm-hmm. And, and I wanna get into um, the launch plans and, and you know, how you launch the company, especially from a content marketing lens. But you know, in order for us to talk about that, I kinda wanna go into how you got to this role um, you know, me and you, we met on a fantasy football league um, that was set up by the <laughs> Fantasy Life app. You drafted Travis Kelsey and uh, Patrick Mahomes first, you know, and, and I was going. I'm undefeated, by the way. I want to add this. I'm the only undefeated <laughs> team still. Hey, listen, and I'm two and four um, and I'm slowly <laughs> rising. So, you know, I, I, you did something right. Right. So it's <laughs> I'm glad we met because you're certainly someone I wanted to bring on the show. Um, but then I was, as I was digging a little bit deeper into your profile and your LinkedIn page, I, I noticed one of the first lines in your summary was, you know, you, you pursued a PhD on predicting how people use social media. And, and that was in 2007. So I'm, I'm wondering if you can tell me about that, because that's a little bit above, you know, or before when social was really developing. And, and I'm curious if that sparked your interest in, in what you're doing now. Yeah, so absolutely, it sparked my interest. The way it worked was in another life, I thought I was going to be an academic. Um, I thought I was going to get a PhD and and be a professor and do research and have students and stuff like that. And for a while, I was on that track. 
And the department I was in was a media effects department. So they literally studied how media affects people. And the way it works when you're in academia is you have to get like really, really niche, really specific. And I had done my master's on sports, racial stereotypes in sports. And when it came time to do my PhD, uh, there's a lot of people doing sports and there was a lot of people doing uh, stereotypes and racial stereotypes specifically. And I kind of realized that I would be running a race with a lot of other people. And 2007, 2008, it was very clear that like social media was gonna be a thing. I hadn't quite taken off. Like it was still kind of like gym selfies and what you had for lunch, but the writing was on the wall. Like it was obvious that this was a thing that everyone was gonna use. And it was almost a strategic decision on my part to think, all right, there's a lot of people who are interested in you know, all these other, other elements of the media, but no one's studying the effects of social media because it's so new. Mm-hmm. So instead of competing with all these other people, why don't I just try, like, this will be my thing. I'll do social media. That way I'm not running a race against 200 people. I'm running a race against two people. And so that was how, how it started. And I, what's funny is I, I think I, you know, I stumbled upon it, but it's almost the secret to life where uh, if you want to be successful, one way to do it is to remove competition. Hmm. And so I, I removed competition by picking an area where it was impossible for anyone to be an expert. So uh, I did that for a few years and the catch was social media was moving so quickly that it was hard to write a dissertation on it. It was hard to make predictions because what I would do is I would set up an experiment and say, and make up like a mock uh, profiles and mock timelines and stuff. And the problem is Facebook would then update their timeline and their Mm -hmm. newsfeed or their profile. So they'd look completely different. So I'd like go through this process and I'd done this like two or three times where I'd set up the whole experiment, gotten it approved, made all the corrections that my committee told me to make. And then it was obsolete by the time I was ready to run it. So uh, enough of that. And I started looking for work outside and and, uh, ended up leaving. So I'm Mm -hmm. a a PhD dropout. I'm what you call ABD, which is all but dissertation. I don't see a scenario where I go back, but you never know. Um, you know, I, I'd written a few chapters in the dissertation too, so I could always go back to that. Uh, but that's how I was in academia. And, uh, the fact that social media was moving faster than, than I could keep up with in academia is why I um, mm-hmm. saw what else was out there in social media. I mean, that thought process is so interesting. It's like you, you remove competition by going somewhere where nobody else is really going. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, you become an expert in that field and you really become a thought leader in that space. Um, I'm curious if you had that same headspace when you were looking for roles. So, you know, you worked uh, in your last job at the Intercontinental Exchange, um, you know, as the social and digital manager. But like, I don't really know anyone that'd be like, I want to work for the Intercontinental Exchange. Like, mm-hmm. I want to work for the New York Stock Exchange. Um, how'd you get there? Is it, is it the same process? Is it the same mentality? Um, tell us about that. 100%. So the New York Stock Exchange is owned by a company called Intercontinental Exchange. And Intercontinental Exchange is the one who put the job posting out. Mm -hmm. And you see that and it was like, you're going to head up social and digital marketing for a portfolio of exchanges. You look at them, they're primarily an energy exchange. They actually, uh, the biggest part of their business is oil, oil exchange. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
And so you get that, that doesn't, that doesn't sound as fun as working for Nike or working for uh, an NFL or NBA team um, or in, in entertainment. Uh, and so, so one, you reduce competition. Not a lot mm-hmm. of people want to want to work for an energy exchange. And so, uh, and I didn't either, <laughs> to be honest, I saw it. Now, and so I, when I saw the opening, I was, um, I was kind of open to anything. Hmm. So I dug a little deeper and I had seen that they had just purchased the New York stock exchange. And I was like, well, that one's interesting. That, mm-hmm. that could be like, that's much more, you know, up my alley than doing energy. They also did commodities and financial products. And so uh, I applied and got the first interview and made, that was really the only question I asked when they asked about any questions was, uh, I don't, I kind of said something like, I don't really understand the role. Like, am I gonna be doing this for all the energy exchanges or do you have like separate commodities exchanges or mm-hmm. like, you know, equity, how does this work? And my then future boss at the time said, oh, I, I guess it doesn't say in the job description. You'll primarily be doing social media for the New York Stock Exchange. And that's when it was like, got real interesting and I got real serious about it. But because I'd taken the time to, to you know, investigate a role that didn't sound that interesting, mm-hmm. I didn't have to compete with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. There was, I remember I found out after the fact from the gate, from the get-go, it was like me and one other person that mm-hmm. was really, that, that were really ever seriously considered. And uh, after that first interview I had, I decided to do a social media audit, uh, both uh, in terms of what people were saying about the New York Stock Exchange, and then in terms of like what I would do if I was in charge of it. Hmm. And by do- and I spent a weekend doing it. Uh, by doing that, I became instantly the front runner. And, and I know this because I talked to HR and my boss after the fact. Uh, so really just by digging and removing competition, picking a, a product or a business that no one else, that most people just looked right past. And then by doing a little extra work after I found out that it was a job I really wanted, mm-hmm. set, me, set me apart. And I didn't have really any, you know, much professional experience at that point, um, especially not at like a Fortune 500 company. That was, you know, lucky for me, they weren't looking for that. Yeah. You know what? Like going um, back to being a young professional, thinking about what you can do to like stick out of the competition and kind of um, really go and get that job. That's, that's a great like key takeaway. I'm going to take away from this is that, you know, just going above and beyond like that, not everyone's going to do, even if you're competing against one other person like you were, or if you're competing Mm -hmm. against a couple hundred, like take that opportunity to really prove yourself. Um, that's a good takeaway, man. I, I like that. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah. I think it showed a bit of humility too, in that um, the other person I was against, they wanted like a bigger title and they were kind of, hmm. they were playing a hardball from the get go. Hmm. And for me, and this might be dependent on the company you're applying for. For me, it was like, I was already digging into the work. I was already doing it. Like I was doing this for free just because I loved it so much. Yeah. And so if you have a company culture, which this is the case at, uh, they go by ICE, Intercontinental Exchange. Mm-hmm. Uh, the culture at ICE is definitely work hard, put your head down, get stuff done. And so, you know, I kind of accidentally uh, showed them that that's how I work and that's what, I, you know, what to expect if you hire me. Mm-hmm. Um, so worked out. Well, what you learn in your time there? Because you were there for a few years, right? Um, yeah. How, do you remember how many years actually? Like, were you? Yes, yeah, six years. So six I years, spent okay. 
they're they're um it, it, it kind of is broken up into two chunks mm-hmm. because um they're based in atlanta so i spent the first two years in atlanta and mm-hmm. then uh it became clear i kind of plateaued on what i could accomplish for the new york stock exchange in atlanta mm-hmm. so they asked if i wanted to move to new york so i relocated to new york and um you know took you know what i'd done and, and was able to multiply it uh exponentially just by being there all right Cool. Okay. So in, in that time, like mm-hmm. obviously social was changing a lot. Um, you know, now it's known for fast turnaround times. How quickly can you have an Oreo moment? You know, um, but at the same time, when you think about a place like the New York Stock Exchange and ICE, like, you know, a lot of the companies that are um, regulated like that, they probably have lots of layers of approvals, um, you know, because it's a direct communication pipeline to that consumer. So how did you navigate all of that when you were there as a social manager? And, and did you find that was happening um, in general when, over the years that you were there? Yeah. So the first thing I did when I started, or one of the first things I did, was I got really friendly with our lawyers. Um, and I recommend anyone who does social media, get in a meeting with whoever needs to approve what you post from a legal standpoint and your boss. Yeah. And I had them map out. I was like, what can I say and what can I not touch like give, mm-hmm. just help me out help me understand um what will get us in trouble and what's what you don't care about and so by having that be very black and white and they made it explicitly clear mm-hmm. <laughs> like it, it was very obvious to me and so once we were able to do that then i was able to go to my boss and say all right here are the things that we can't touch won't touch i'll never even you know i'm never even going to suggest it don't worry about mm-hmm. it and uh here are the things that are completely safe give me autonomy on the stuff that's safe. Like, let me, like you hired me to do this job. Let me just go out and I'll push this. And so we got, so there was no approval. Didn't Mm -hmm. need anyone. uh, And I think approval is a really, too many layers of approval is a really great way to kill any personality in social media and to not react soon enough. And so I, I pitched my boss on this idea. Lucky for me, she trusted me. Um, lucky for me, she thought I was senior enough to handle it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's really how that evolved. And so then when I was going on to next roles or when I, you know, had, had different bosses that stayed the same. It was like, we cannot be successful if we get in our own way. Mm-hmm. And if someone who does social media is listening to this, I am willing to bet they'll relate to this is that as soon as you involve too many people in really any social media decision, it just takes one person to say no to kill an idea. And so it becomes really, really hard to get anything remotely interesting out there. So by really getting rid of all that red tape and all those layers are what's key to having a, you know, an actually interesting social media handle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know what, like I'm thinking about, um... All the, all the examples that I have uh, experienced in my career with, with brands and in general, um, you know, a lot of times it's about protection um, of what's been developed over a certain amount of years, right? And, and I can understand why a lot of uh, senior level executives want to be involved in, in some of those decisions. But you're right. It's, it's a great way to kill innovation. It's a great way to kill the creativity behind social. Um, have you learned anything in terms of of like how to battle against that if you were in an environment like that? Uh, yeah, there's, there's really two. <laughs> there's some where you're just not going to win. 
Mm-hmm. And I've actually had people, cause you know, I've done talks and stuff and I'll say something similar and people will say like, I've tried this, I've talked and you know, like they don't budge and all this. And like, there's a time when you just got to go, okay, I've plateaued here. Hmm. Like this is they're, they're, they're If they're not going to promote me and they're not going to do, they're not going to listen to my ideas. They're not going to give me more autonomy. Hmm. Then it's probably time to find somewhere else where you can have that. Uh, the other way that I've done it is it's really being frank and being, you know, open and communicating as early as possible. Um, and it's never too late. You can always have it again. You can always, you know, it's better late than never. Um, but luckily for me, I had that conversation early at mm-hmm. ICE. And it was a conversation that I had before I ever even accepted the job at FAST, just saying like, this is how we're going to be successful if, you know, if we work together. Um, So knowing that that was going to be the case ahead of time. But if you are right now, you know, you've been working at a job for three years and you don't have that autonomy Mm -hmm. uh, right now, literally pause this podcast, write an email to your boss and say, hey, I want to get rid of some of the red tape that we have. I want to make it so we're a little more, maybe don't say the red tape. I want to make us more nimble on social media. I want to make us so that we're more in uh, um, uh, tuned into what's happening in real time. I'd love to schedule some time with you to figure out how we make that possible. Um, do you have time for a Zoom call You know, next week? Mm-hmm. And just open up that dialogue and you'll find out one or two things. Either your boss never even considered it and mm-hmm. he or she will, you know, kind of fight for you to get you that autonomy or that their hands will be tied. They'll say, sorry, you know, it's, you know, not in our company culture, or, you know, the agency does this or the, you know, executives think that, but at least you'll know where you stand at that point. And you can, you know, then it's up to you to, to keep fighting for that autonomy or to go look for something different. Mm-hmm. No, that's great advice. I mean, I, like in my head, I was thinking of the ocean spray example Because, you know, all of marketing Twitter was talking about how they didn't react fast enough or how they didn't Mm -hmm. do certain things. But then there's the other side of it where, you know, there's probably layers of approval there. There's all these challenges that people are dealing with. So I I can only imagine, you know, the challenges that social managers have when they're working in different environments like that, um, Mm -hmm. where there's internal pressure, but there's also external pressure. and, And just navigating that can be handled just by having those frank conversations with your bosses. Yeah. I'd love to talk about the ocean spray thing for a second, because I think that's a bit of a anomaly in terms of uh, how quickly you should react. So, (laughs) um, you know, you have timely things where depending on your brand, it makes sense for you to make a joke about it or to be part of it. So uh, like the fly on Mike Pence's head, everyone's watching the debate, fly gets on his head. Maybe you're, uh, um, you know, I I don't know how you're related to your brand, but whatever. Maybe there's a clever way for you to do it that's kind of something you need to jump on right away because mm-hmm. that that moment's boring two days later you know mm-hmm. if you're if you sell fly swatters you can't do your mike pence fly swatter ad two days later it has to be that day mm-hmm. uh the ocean spray thing is interesting because it was specific to that company and so what you want to think about there is oh my god the fish jumped in the boat <laughs> you know mm-hmm. like this yeah, is totally. just dumb luck how do we best capitalize on this so it's not about like having all these people to have their say or to 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 miss the chance it's more about this is a once in a lifetime or once in a career once every 10 years thing that happens to a brand what is our best possible response 
And so you want to be quick, but you don't want to be thoughtless. And so kind of having a quick huddle. So if you see that, like what you want to do is like, guys, we need an emergency meeting. Everyone get on this Zoom in 30 minutes. I don't care what you're doing. Uh, Let's talk about this and let's get some plans. You know, you do, let's say it happens on a Sunday afternoon, like get on the Zoom Sunday night. And then by Monday morning, everyone has five ideas for how you're going to respond. And this way you can be a little more thoughtful. Everyone feels like they're part of the process and you can really maximize that. Uh, I think the end result, they bought the guy a truck was, you know, and they got... A bunch of PR out of that too, um, you know. Like, what, what's it? I don't know. Let's say they bought him a thirty thousand dollar truck. Let's say fifty thousand dollars. The amount of PR and and uh, goodwill they got just from that move is worth more than the fifty thousand dollars. So it seems like they were able to do it, even if it was, you know, three or four days after the fact. And and you know what? Like, I I feel like why it came across so positively because it was it was a very genuine action right so the reaction could have been that brand says we're going to film some tiktoks we're going to try to replicate this work with some influencers um and look at us like we are ocean spray um i feel like part of it was effective because it's it's a genuine action for a problem that person was facing and the car solved that right and Mm -hmm. taking that positive pr developing that um, doesn't happen overnight. So having those quick huddles, having those important meetings, sometimes you get a very thoughtful idea out of it like they had. Yeah. And to your point, they kept him the star. They, yeah. they didn't take over. They, what, they didn't make it about them. They made it about that guy's name. I forget his name, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, they kept him at the center of the attention, which he was the star of the ad. Ocean Spray mm-hmm. played uh, a supporting role. And then when they thanked him and they did the PR thing, they still played a supporting role, but they still made him the main character of, of the, um, you know, content. And then I love how TikTok actually amplified all that stuff and they made him the star again, just showing that, you know, in the ad that they played during the baseball game, um, you know, about a few weeks ago, they, they really didn't try to make it all about us, right? So I think that's the interesting takeaway that I had was how do you genuinely play a role with your brand to support the conversation that's already happening instead of trying to take it over. hundred percent. I think that's actually a good metaphor for any brand is that you're not the main character. Like mm-hmm. I, right now, I don't know if anyone's watching this, but I like, I'm drinking a Yeti. Yeti isn't mm-hmm. the main character. I'm drinking out of a Yeti. It's not the main character of my life. It's a supporting character. I like it. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's a good product. Um, and that's how every product is. And so to think about your products that way, you got to think about the emotional elements. You got to think about how they support a certain lifestyle or, or just trying to get certain things done. Um, and if you do that, I think you're thinking about marketing the right way. Mm-hmm. So man, you're, um, you're obviously well known for your Twitter page, right? And so when you made the move to work on your personal brand and then to actually, from what I've heard, you've DM'd Dom Holland, the CEO of Fast, and when you messaged him on Twitter, you just wanted to learn about the company. But then I think six months later, it actually helped you land a job. Like, what was the thought process behind that? And were you, were you building your personal brand all throughout your experience, um, you know, with the New York Stock Exchange? And, you know, why did you prioritize it? So I only started getting active on my personal Twitter, uh, or I should say deliberately active. Uh, it was like in April or May of last year. So we're at like a year and a half, maybe, maybe a little longer. Mm-hmm. And that was, and, and I had used it before, but never to kind of like share the way that I thought. And so I made the decision, like, I'm going to share my thinking on Twitter. 
And, um, you know, there's a couple reasons. Like one, it was like, let's see if I wanted to apply everything I knew about social media to a personal handle uh, from, a, you know, from a brand point, standpoint to a personal handle. Um, I wanted to one, I just wanted to, I kind of treat it a little bit like a diary. Uh, if you see a lot of the stuff I post is in the second person. And I don't actually do that as a way to like tell people what to do. It's actually a way to tell myself. Well, to uh, follow my own advice better when it mm -hmm. sounds like it's in the second person, it takes some of, uh, you know, the ego out of it and that it's just uh, unbiased advice for how to live. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I just kept doing it and I, and, you know, I just, and it just kind of worked and it, and it resonated. And I think I was fortunate enough to tap into at least from a marketing or social media standpoint into some of the things that people were feeling, but hadn't really necessarily expressed. Um, mm -hmm. like there's a lot of misconceptions about what it means to be a social, to work in social media, to post social media, what effective social media is. And I just kind of started saying, or sharing my experiences uh, in, in a way that was uh, kind of, you know, not kind of, definitely pithy, mm -hmm. uh, that resonated. And, and, um, and I was able to kind of, over time, sprinkle in, I just kind of have a, a general interest in happiness and philosophy and, and, you know, trying to live the best life possible. So I kind of sprinkle that stuff in and, mm -hmm. uh, and it's resonated the past, you know, year and a half, whatever it might be. Um, to your question about messaging people and, and, you know, building a brand to, you know, kind of figure out what's next for me. The way it worked with Fast was I had decided, so I was still working at the New York Stock Exchange at the time. Mm -hmm. I had decided that I wanted my next role to be at a startup. I just, I got that in my head and there was no getting it out. You know, it was like, I was just determined, like that was where my next landing spot was going to be. I wasn't going to work at an agency. I wasn't going to work at a, you know, big corporation. Mm -hmm. And so for like, so for like two years, maybe, maybe not quite that long, but close to it, uh, I was looking and I decided to start like, uh, I wanted to like build a network in that world, in that space. Mm -hmm. And so there was no way I couldn't just go message people and say, Hey, give me a job. You know, like that was just, you know, no one likes that. Or, or like, let me pitch you on what I can do. Mm -hmm. So I decided, and also too, that's not really a good way to get into that community. So I decided, you know what I'm going to do instead of pitching myself ever, I'm never going to do that. I'm going to go and I'm going to find companies, startups that I think are doing interesting things. And I'm going to reach out to the CEO and I'm going to see if they just want to have a conversation with me. So I literally did that dozens of times. I just found, because most CEOs tend to be on Twitter, especially in startups, and, and they tend to be pretty active there. And so I would just DM them and say, hey, I just read about your company or, you know, this, however I found out about it. I'd love to talk about it for 30 minutes. I just want to learn more. Like, that's, hmm. that's all I got. I, I work at the stock exchange. Here's what I do. Um, didn't ask for anything. And what I found was that, you know, when you're a CEO, when you're a founder of a company, that is your baby. And everyone likes to talk about their baby. You want to make an instant friend with someone, say, show me your baby pictures. Uh, you know, and if you have a pet, it's, oh my God, I love your dog. Yep. Same idea. You, you take someone, your, your company sounds so interesting. Will you tell me about it? Hmm. I got 100% success rate. Every single founder did that. Now I picked early stage startups. I wasn't going to Brian Chesky of Airbnb and calling that a startup. I wasn't yep. you know, going to Travis Kalanick and saying, this Uber startup you have here. <laughs> uh, they, were, 
they were very young companies. And so what I did was I started talking to them. Uh, you know, they start following you on social media. You see who they follow. You see the VCs they're following. And all of a sudden you're kind of having conversations in this world now that you weren't having otherwise. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's exactly what I did with Fast. I remember when I heard about Fast, I thought, that's an interesting idea. I'd love to learn more. So I DM'd Dom and pitch, you know, I was like, do you have 30 minutes to talk about Fast? He said, sure. Told me about it. And once I understood the full vision, mm-hmm. it was very clear to me, like, oh, this is a problem that someone is going to solve on the internet. Someone will mm-hmm. solve this problem. Uh, I don't know that it's Fast, but I know that they're the only ones completely dedicated to it right now. Mm-hmm. And so I ended the conversation with, if you ever need help with marketing, let me know. And so that's when you fast forward six months later and he messaged me and he said, Hey, I'd love to tell you about where we're at right now. You know, we're starting to build out our marketing team. I'd love to have a conversation with you. I said, yeah, of course, let's do it. And, uh, and this was a Friday and I think it was only a 30 minute call. He tells me everything and he ends the conversation with, well, do you want to join? And I didn't yeah. know, like, I didn't think this was a job interview or anything. I thought it was just giving me an update on fast. Yeah. And I said, I have a few questions. Um, you know, let me, let me email. <laughs> let me think you. about it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I didn't know. I, I didn't come to prepare to this for it's like, do you have any questions for me? Cool. Just tell me everything about fast. And, uh, and so I emailed him the questions that night. He replied, I think Saturday by Sunday, he sent me an offer. And I think by hmm. Tuesday morning, I'd signed it. That was fast. <laughs> it was fast. That, that is definitely a joke. Well, what's funny too, is I realized, um, one of the ways that startups, because startups are definitely a different beast than, yep. than corporations. And one of the keys to success at a startup is to make fast decisions. Hmm. Uh, I've learned that there's three different types of decisions you have to make. Uh, you have the decisions that you need to outsource to someone else. And sure. that just really means hiring someone, uh, usually. Um, so you have the ones that other people need to make. And then you have the ones where it doesn't, you know, you need to make the decision quickly. Um, and then there's the decisions where you need to take your time and think about it. And you only, you know, have enough room for like one or two of those, maybe a day and maybe even only, you know, two or three a week. And so uh, to figure out what decisions you need to make fast and, and to get going. And he had made the decision that he wanted me at the company. And mm. so then every other decision kind of after that with me was quick. It was like, yeah, here are the answers. Here's this. And so you realize that like speed is. Uh, such an advantage, even a decision-making at a startup. Yeah. So, I mean, okay, tell me, tell me more about this. You're, you became the director of content marketing. Um, You know, when you first heard about the company, you were very receptive to the idea of what they were trying to solve, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Now in your shoes, you know, as you've launched the startup um, from a marketing lens, you know, how are consumers being receptive to the idea? Are they falling in love with it? from a content perspective or do they really love the concept and and you know what is what is driving success for you guys yeah so what's funny is we're we're not a b2c company we're we consider ourselves a b2b to c company hmm, yeah cuz the only way we need websites to install fast checkout so really like that's who we that's who we need to um, to talk to or, or who our customer is uh, but what's funny is the end user is the customer, is, is just a regular consumer. Yeah. And so we've decided to use our social media to talk to that last person. Mm-hmm. So or sorry, I should say our, our organic social media, talk to that last person. 
-hmm. We have paid that targets the store owners. We have organic that targets the people who buy from the stores. And our logic being is we want to make an army of advocates. We want mm -hmm. to make people that go, God, I, Nike, I love you. Mm -hmm. I want to buy more stuff from you. Will you install fast on your website so I can buy more stuff from you? Mm -hmm. So that's our plan with organic. And, uh, and we're doing this through, uh, you know, through giveaways and, and through making our content fun and interesting and really to kind of give people a reason to follow. Uh, a good example today is we launched, and maybe this dates this depending on how long you're listening to it, but we yep. launched a campaign with Solo Stove. So Solo Stove is this really cool campfire. Um, it, it, it's like an all-contained uh, unit, and you just you know put some wood, fire stuff in there, and you got a campfire wherever you are. You mm -hmm. know, well, maybe if you're not in New York City, but anywhere you are where you're, it's legal to have a fire. Uh, it's this really really cool thing. And so we filmed a video of it. Uh, they just installed Fast Checkout. We filmed a video of it. And so right now we're giving away solo stoves to groups of friends because the whole point of like a, a campfire is like you're with people you care about, you know, like no one goes to a campfire with strangers or people they don't like you're there with your friends or your family. Mm -hmm. And so we're doing this giveaway where you and your group of friends get to win a solo stove and it gets people more excited for fast. It gets people more excited for the product. And we want to just like our plan now is to roll this out for, uh, for any kind of brand where you've got people that are excited about the brands that use fast checkout and the brands that don't use fast checkout there, we've got an army of people begging these companies to install it on their website. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense because you, you really need the consumers to be passionate about the brand to ask those stores, those local store owners or those companies to have fast and then at the same time, you need those companies to be aware of who you are. So using paid and using organic in different ways um, solves two different issues, but they're both equally important. Yep. And, and we're, and, and what we want to do too is, um, you know, as we get more stores, you're going to see it more in the wild, but we want someone who maybe has seen us on Twitter, but haven't seen the button in the wild yet to be mm -hmm. so excited that they can't wait to use it. They're like, oh my God, if finally a store that sells something I want to buy has it, I can't wait to use this. And we believe that those are the type of people that are gonna tell their friends and more, more importantly, uh, gonna tell their parents. Like we want, hmm. like this is for people like me and you, but it's also for our parents and for our grandparents, hmm. you know, cause we wanna make the tech so easy that you don't feel frustrated by getting, you know, some error message that it's uh, uh, something that anybody of any, uh, technical skill, you know, like you don't have to be super into tech to use this. It's a mm -hmm. super seamless, easy thing that anyone, you know, as long as you can surf the web, you can use fast checkout. So we're really hoping to build an army of advocates that then tells the people who, you know, don't use Twitter, don't use Instagram, you know, maybe only use Facebook, that this is a better way to shop. Mm -hmm. and, and I want to probe on that for a second, because, you know, um, from a technical standpoint, it prides itself in being very easy to use. You want, you want to make sure that the consumer takes that away and the stores take that away. But I know that, you know, when you launched a couple months ago or a month ago, um, you put out a thread on the actual social channel for fast. And there were some people having issues with trying fast checkout for the first time, you know, so what, wh how important was it for you to use your social um, to really drive, you know, clarity around that transparency and then how did people react to that when they heard that? 
So uh, for those of you who haven't seen the thread, so we launched and when we launched, there was, um, I, I mean, to be transparent, for 90% of the people it worked great. And for 10% yeah. of the people they had issues. Yeah. And the problem is the, the 10% are very loud. And <laughs> that's Twitter for you. Uh, for sure. that, that is Twitter for you. Uh, and that's fine. And, uh, and honestly, we knew it. We knew that when we launched it, there would be a few bugs. Uh, and when we kind of, and, and not to get too technical, but you have so many things where it's like you're on a certain browser and a certain zip code uh, buying a certain product, like th there's just these combinations that's really hard to predict. And you really don't, like some of them are just going to be impossible to see until you actually put it out in the wild. Mm -hmm. So we knew that part going in. Uh, there were some other things that we probably should have caught beforehand, but we didn't. Mm -hmm. And so what we did was, you know, we, we let the, you know, dust settle for a few hours. Also too, actually, another reason we had a few bugs is it was so wildly successful beyond anything we imagined that mm -hmm. we overwhelmed some of the systems that were needed to, to use it. So we had to like all of a sudden double down uh, mm -hmm. on some of that stuff. So what we did is, uh, and we had to ramp up our customer service. So we did that. We're like, you know, we, I, I honestly, we worked like 24 or 48 hours straight just to get uh, through all the um, big stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think it was like hour 18 or something. Mm -hmm. It was, we pride ourselves on being transparent and we tried ourselves, pride ourselves on being trustworthy. And so we literally just wrote a thread that was, that said exactly that. It mm -hmm. was like, you know what? We've built in public, uh, we've launched in public and now we're fixing in public. Here are the top errors that we saw that we've addressed. There's a handful of others. Um, we're working on some of these and some of the ones we're working on, they're going to take a few weeks, but this is where we're at. Um, you know, it's kind of like we apologize for everyone who had a less than great experience, but mm -hmm. we do not apologize for who we are mm -hmm. because some of the, some of the, uh, feedback we got was like, I can't believe you guys hyped it up so much and it didn't work for some people. And it's like, we apologize for the not working part. We do not apologize for the hyping it up. Mm -hmm. I will never apologize for talking about, uh, how we're going to make the internet better. And so that was really what it was. It was, you know, we're going to, we're fixing this. Uh, we appreciate the feedback. Some of the stuff we only could have found if we launched and some of the stuff we should have caught. But now that we have, we're uh, fixing it. And, and to be honest too, we launched this for people that are super early adopters on Twitter. Mm -hmm. You know, like we didn't launch, yeah, we technically launched it for the world, but you know, my parents, had they not known that I worked at Fast, th that wasn't on the radar. They were never dying to buy a hoodie sure. just to test it out. Yeah. So it really was, uh, it's like, why didn't you do it to a beta group? And it's like, it kind of was a beta. Like that was, this actually was kind of it. Mm -hmm. And so we're able to work all these uh, bugs out. And the benefit is we have a much stronger, much more robust system significantly quicker by shouting and saying, hey, look at us and having everyone look at us and having everyone point out the problems that we had. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other thing I want to point out too, is we were able to build up enough goodwill that of the 10% that had problems, 90% of those people were actually very polite about the problems. There were, you know, there was like, oh, it looks like my, you know, the zip code isn't working in this country. Uh, you know, I, I get it. I've had this issue on other, trying to order stuff other places. Um, you know, like they, they were rooting for us. And so it was really this great way to help make our products so much stronger, so much better, and so much faster. So mm -hmm. I, I, 
it blame me. It stung for 48 hours or, you know, we felt the, we felt the ramifications as there were people um, still having, you know, issues we had to resolve for a few days after, but to anyone who's ever thinking about launching, like I would recommend launching too early and having some people have less than ideal experiences so you can fix them quicker. Like hmm. that sped up uh, the strength of our system tenfold easy because we easily could have pushed that launch date back a month or you know six months and made it perfect and there still would have been mistakes and we would be you know we wouldn't be where we're at today without doing that mm-hmm. and and you know the way that i look at it is if you had 10 percent of people being very vocal about their experience you know part of it is you you've successfully built a community of people that are um interested in your brand right and so mm-hmm. The fact that they're willing to try it out, the, the fact that you've taken a company that was very low awareness to something that has advocates, whether good or bad from their experience the first time, that's a positive thing. And I, I take that away as a positive for sure. Agreed. I, I honestly, I, and I, this is kind of maybe, you know, like bulletin board material if you're in sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is just me personally. I haven't talked to anyone else in the company about this. But one way that I look at it is the is, you know, it's the 10% of the 10% who are kind of mean and nasty about the launch. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't wait to prove them wrong. I can't wait to be like, wait till you try this again. Yeah. Wait until all your friends are doing it. Wait until like your mom wants to use it and asks <laughs> you about it. Like, I know that we're headed in that direction. Yeah. And so, and also too, they're going to use it. They're, you know, like they're not going to, they're not, no one's basing their identity on hating fast. It's just, you know, who cares? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if, uh, what I want to do is give them such a good product that they have to just kind of admit, yep, you know what, this is a great product. And I maybe hated on it uh, six months ago or a year ago, whatever, but I'm, you know, it's, it's too good of a product not to use. I'd be foolish. And they kind of get to, you know, backtrack on what they said. And obviously not going to hold anyone to accountable. I, I've never, there's no way to me to follow up if they ever use it. Yeah. But like, that's my goal is for everyone who wanted to take a shot at us to, to have them be uh, users of the, of the product. I mean, that's the ultimate compliment, right? Um, mm-hmm. At the end of the day, if they're using the product, uh, you know, jokes, I mean, yeah. jokes on them. Right. Yeah. Um, so there's two questions I kind of want to end this off with. And, and one of them is, going back to that conversation around building a personal brand and how you've successfully done that, you know, mm-hmm. if you're working for a large company, um, we were talking a little bit about how protection of the brand is very important, right? And when you have an employee's personal brand being too big, I, I wonder if there's such a thing, but mm-hmm. sometimes it can create a challenge with how, you know, the company perceives it or certain people perceive it. I am on the, on the other side of the spectrum where, you know, your employees are your biggest advocates. They should be your voice. They can be an extension of the company's voice. You know, what's your take on, on, on that as a whole, especially with larger companies? And how'd you convince, you know, whether it be the New York Stock Exchange or Fast to let you be an extension of the company's voice on social? Uh, for Fast, I don't want to speak for Don, but I have this suspicion. I yeah. think he hired me to be an advocate for fast. And as you see me here wearing my fast hoodie, talking about fast, it worked. Um, uh-huh. I think Dom and people like Dom are, uh, you know, two, three years ahead of where this trend is going, where you don't want to silence your employees. You want to empower your employees. Hundreds mm-hmm. of thousands of people have now heard of fast because he hired me. 
And I don't even mean it as like, I'm some great marketer. I just mean it as that I have an audience where you get that kind of reach. So why would you not empower your employees to do that? So I tend to be of the opinion that like, this is inevitable. And I made this uh, prediction, God, maybe like a year ago. And I still think I'm several years away from it actually being true. But I don't get why brands don't either hire influencers to work full-time or develop their own internally. Hmm. Like to me, it makes so much sense. You should empower, you should give them everything they need because you, you know, it's no different than a spokesperson. Mm -hmm. Like every company should like, should have their own progressive flow, you know, like the the character flow. Like, I I don't know why you, you wouldn't do that. It's, it's such an advantage. It is such an unbelievable advantage. Uh, to answer your question about like, how did the New York Stock Exchange take it? Uh, they weren't crazy about it, to be honest. Yeah. You know, like they, I had plenty of times where my boss kind of sent me an email or, or you know, um, called me up. We worked in different cities at the time. And it was just like, hey, such and such saw this tweet. And I'm like, okay, okay. like, <laughs> did I break any rules? And it's like, well, no, but he's just not wild about it, you know? And so like, that was always an element huh. uh, at at the stock exchange. And I actually have a friend who uh, their social media was growing and they essentially got called into the office and said, Hey, I think, you know, I think you're, you got to dial it back a little. We're worried that your pro- your persona is becoming a little too big. Hmm. And it is such a backwards way of thinking. It's, you know what you could do instead of saying like, Hey, your persona is getting too big. Go, Oh my God. This is amazing. We want to empower you yeah. to essentially be an advocate for our company. Do you need anything from us? That person now is an advocate for life easily, even if they don't take them up on it, just even that offer. Uh, and then you've also empowered them to say nice things about the company. Like we hi- companies hire people and pay them lots of money to do their job. Mm-hmm. And so you just have to, trust someone that if you're paying them, that they're not, they're bashing the company, that they're not saying things that they shouldn't say. Like it's, it's no different than like you hire someone and you expect them to do the work that you hired them to do. Like if you trust them to do the work, you keep them on. If you don't like the work that they're doing, or if they do something that, you know, isn't in line with what you want for the brand, uh, fire them. Like that's, (laughs) that's the world we live in. But I think the risk to reward people think the risk is really high. The reward is really low and it's the inverse and the companies that figure this out sooner rather than later are going to have such a strong advantage in social media because we're very clearly moving to influencer led social media or influencer dominant social media. Sure, uh, yeah. You know, kind of the younger you get the, you know, in times of generations, you got gen X millennial and then Z uh, it's very clear that like they're celebrities, the younger you get, the bigger the celebrities are, are the influencers. Mm-hmm. And that, that that's a way to tap into, it's like hiring an actor for free. Like it's like being able to go hire George Clooney to work at your company and just talk about how great it is. It's like, of course you would do that, but no one ever does because George Clooney doesn't want to make $150,000 a year. Yeah. But you could literally hire someone on social media for that. So it I seems- can't. Seems so short-sighted. Uh, one, one other thing I want to say too, that I, I try to say in every interview, I think everyone who works in social media is vastly underpaid. I think the amount of stress you have to put up with, 
I think the amount of, uh, uh, you know, chance that something could go wrong. Um, I think it is a uh, industry that needs to double its pay. Like I think every, every job should start at $200,000 and that there should be no junior people running social media. You could have junior people on a social media team, but it is the face of your company. It is uh, the biggest chance to, to have egg on your face and you should hire someone and pay them according to that risk and that you know, responsibility. Hey, I mean, a lot of people are going to be on your side with that. I mean, I, I don't argue it. <laughs> it is, uh, it's a job that's definitely underappreciated. And you know what? I, I think about what you were saying earlier about um, why the risk reward is, is so inverse of what um, a lot of companies mm-hmm. think of. And in general, um, you know, there's a lot of benefit that can come from that. You, you think about your paying influencers externally from the company when you can have similar influencers that you empower within the company and they can just be in uh, an extension of what you do. And I think, you know, hopefully we see that a little bit more as companies uh, start to realize the power of it. But Matt, we got one last question here today and I'd, it'd be, I'd be, um, it'd be a miss on my part to kind of not ask you about biggest learnings you've had in your career. You know, whether it be um, what students should be doing to utilize social more to get opportunities or, you know, what you've learned at fast or what you've learned at the New York stock exchange. Like what's, what's one takeaway that you've had in your year so far? Uh, The biggest one is build your network. The, you know, the best way to get a job is through someone knowing that a job is available. I never want to apply for a job again because it is a horrible process. You're already behind the eight ball. And the way to avoid that is to start meeting and interacting with as many people doing what it is that you want to do. And so I'm such an advocate for Twitter because I actually think out of all the social media platforms, Twitter is the best for actually networking. Mm -hmm. And networking is not, here's my business card. Networking is not, oh, here am I, here's what I'm good at. Let me know if it fits any roles you're trying to fill. Networking is developing a relationship. Me and you have a network now. Me and you have a relationship now. If, uh, if, if ever it became a scenario where one of us was looking to fill a job or one of us needed a job, like we could legitimately reach out to the other person and, totally. and have perhaps something uh, available to us. And so that's what everyone needs to do. And you can't network with people above you. I think the mistake people make is they go, oh, network, let me go find these CEOs to do that. Hmm. You're, not, you're not a CEO. You're not in that world. What you need to do is find your tribe of people that are doing the same thing you are, similar thing you are, that are about the same level. And that's how you all of a sudden pour gasoline on your career. So if you have to do this through friends, if you have to do this through you know work and networking events or Twitter, whatever it is, figure out how to do that. Um, that is the, been the biggest secret to, to my success. And I, I mean, we talked about it earlier. It's literally what I did. I literally reached out to people just to network. I just said, Hey, I'd love to talk about your company. You have to, and if you're going to do that, you have to give someone something that they want in return. So for me, I was able to give founders an outlet to talk about something that they loved. Mm-hmm. Uh, even me and you, this podcast, I agree to be on here. For no benefit of yours. This is 100% a selfish decision on my part because I love to talk about social media. Mm -hmm. So it's an easy yes. So find something that you can offer people and then develop that relationship. If it's on Twitter, an easy way to do it is 
find the people that you want to, you know, find that group that you want to be a part of, figure out what they're saying and figure out a way to amplify what they're saying or to build on what they're saying. And mm -hmm. that's a way to build your network. You know, the, like the people that uh, uh, created content based on my content are the people that I now understand or that like I now have relationships with. Mm -hmm. um, there are people that would like illustrate Instagram lives that I did. There's people that have um, uh, summarized some of my tweets. There's people that have taken notes on stuff. And those, I know those people now. And those people are part of my network where if they asked me for a favor or an introduction or a job opening or whatever it might be, those people are top on my list now. Mm -hmm. And it, it's just human nature. So get as big of a network as possible. And if you say, I don't know who to start with, I don't know, I don't know anyone, you start on Twitter, go right there and do a little work and find the people that are having the conversations you wanna be a part of. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's a great takeaway, man. And, and I appreciate one for you to come on the show and, and talk about personal branding, social, all the stuff that we chatted about with Fast, but just to have that one key takeaway about value-based networking, how to build your tribe and your community, and do it genuinely um, by by offering something that that person really really wants um, and sees value in in return. So I think that's a key takeaway for anyone listening, especially if you're a young professional. And Matt, appreciate it. Um, hope you lose in fantasy football this week, and uh, I hope to see you again, buddy. Yeah, we'll talk soon. All right, cheers, man. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Make sure to follow us at Sponsor Talk on Twitter and at the sponsorship space on LinkedIn and join our community if you're interested in learning more. Thanks and have a great day.